you can't try over spilled milk. Like you got to just pick it up and keep moving. And I really think it allows you to focus on each day, not look three days down the road, just do what you can do on this particular day with whatever players you have and whatever staff you have. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of the Arkansas Razorbacks, Eric Musselman. Coach Musselman is here today to discuss building career and team momentum, creating competitive staffs, off-ball cutting and screening concepts, and we talk player rotations, paint touches, and sideline energy during a new segment called Over or Under. We're excited to have recently launched Slapping Glass Plus, our premium learning and coaching platform consisting of Slapping Glass TV, the Sunday morning newsletter, our private Coach's Corner community, monthly Q&A and clinics, and more. Please visit slappingglass.com for more information. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Eric Musselman. One of the places we wanted to start with you is, you know, if you kind of look at how you coach both your, your team and then also your career, one thing that stuck out to Pat and I is your ability to create momentum for both yourself as a coach in your career, then also within your program. And wanted to start with ways that coaches can look at how to build momentum within their own careers to sort of help them either build their own program or move on to another job or whatever it is. And so what are some thoughts and some ways that you've looked at that throughout the course of your career? You know, Dan, when you talk about, you know, building momentum in a career, I think it's doing the right thing where your feet are planted. And then I also think it really matters who you're working for at a really young age. And so I was very, very fortunate, you know, right out of college to uh, get my foot in the door with the Los Angeles Clippers. And they were not winning at the time, uh, but the head coach was Gene Shu, um, who was really, really creative. There's, if you kind of Google and do history on Gene Shu, he was a creator of many things. And so the way I got the foot in the door was to actually sell tickets with the Clippers. Um, I was account executive. I got account executive of, of the month, back-to-back months. And then I was hired into their personnel as an assistant personnel director. So momentum in my career took off by doing something I didn't want to do, which was sell tickets. But I wanted to be in the NBA. I sold tickets at a high rate. And then that got me you know, in a very, very short time to be the assistant personnel director um, under Barry Hecker and the, and the LA Clippers. And, and the GM was Elgin Baylor. And so I tried to hang out in Elgin Baylor's office as much as possible. I got to be a part of sitting in a small draft room at a really, really young age. And as I look back at the career and think about the momentum that my career kind of took off with, it was always being a great listener. And it was uh, having a relentless thirst for knowledge and to continually try to outwork everybody in the building. You know, when I was an assistant coach 
for instance, with the Orlando Magic and, and the Memphis Grizzlies, and they were two different times in my careers, I wanted to be the first one in the building. And I wanted to be one of the last ones out. And when I heard a ball bouncing, it was my job to go rebound for a player. And I've never understood why coaches or assistant coaches, especially when a player's in shooting, why they wouldn't want to, whether it's pre-practice, post-practice, in college, if you're under your hours, why you wouldn't want to go spend time. Certainly in the NBA, player development's a huge part and your job is to service the players. And so I think that, you know, those are the type of things, you guys, that I, I believe truly helped me gain momentum in my career. Coach, on the other side of the coin, if you're a coach who has kind of created the momentum, what are maybe some of the pitfalls that you've noticed that can then kind of derail the momentum or hurt your momentum and you got to then maybe start or build it back up again? Well, I can tell you from personal experience, I think one thing, if you've never been fired before as a coach, you have no clue what's coming. Because I love talking to coaches of other sports. I have a lot of really, really good friends that I converse with all the time, like Michael Lombardi, and um, who's a former NFL executive, and you guys have had, and Phil Nevin, who's with the New York Yankees. I, I love to talk to those type of people outside of our field because they're much more open to try to help where maybe people in your own sport are a little more guarded because of competitive advantage and so on and so forth. But your career can have great momentum, and then all of a sudden it comes to a screeching halt when you get fired. And all of us Maybe not as an assistant coach, you really, you know, you can go through a whole career and not get fired. But as a head coach, you're going to get fired and it humbles you. It kind of makes you reflect back to kind of an autopsy of where your career is. And then for me, almost every time that I have been fired, which is, I guess it's only really happened twice uh, with the Golden State Warriors and the Sacramento Kings. When you when you get fired, you, you, you kind of can take a different direction in your career and And after one of the times that I was let go, I kind of got into the media. And so I learned a whole new facet of what they have to go through and and their job. I'll never forget working for ESPN radio, doing the NBA game of the week. And Beth, who was a, you know, the coordinator or whatever, handed me a little tape recorder. I had flown in for a 6 a.m. game in Detroit. Larry Brown was coaching the Pistons. And she said, you know, you need to go get a two minute pregame with Larry Brown. And he was about 50 feet away from me. And as she handed me the tape recorder, I have never sweated more in my life (laughs) taking the steps to go do an interview on the radio with coach Larry Brown, because, you know, you have such great respect for somebody, but you also have a job as a media member to maybe ask some questions that are a little bit uncomfortable about matchups or if a team's lost a couple games in a row. So I, I kind of, you know, had a, a whole new realization to what media members have to go through. Um, But not to get off course, Pat, with, with the question, I think that for me, every time I've been in a situation where I'm out of a job, it's always been, all right, what do I want out of this short term? And then what do I want out of it long term? And I kind of explained after the warrior situation, the media that I went into, and then after Sacramento, I decided I, I wanted to reconnect with my two sons. Um, And so I went and spent three years being a dad, best three years of my life. I got to study people in other sports. I got to speak to teams that played at Cal or played Stanford or played St. Mary's or University of San Francisco. And so that's kind of where my intrigue with getting into the college game, when I would speak to these teams or go watch them practice, 
that's kind of when I started to think about getting into the collegiate game. If I could just follow up on something you said really interesting about spending the three years to be a dad. When you came back after those three years, did it change at all how you run a program and, and coach your team? Well, I was sitting in the Monta Vista High School parking lot and I looked around. I was in carpool lane. I was going to pick up my son, Michael. I was the only dad in line. Everybody was drinking Starbucks coffee. And at that point, I realized because I was there about 23 or 24 minutes before school got out. And at that point, I realized, hey, you know what? I got to get back into coaching. (laughs) (laughs) And, And Danielle who we were not married at the time. She thought the first year her and I together was really, really fun. We did a lot of neat things outside of our sport while she was working in national media and broadcasting. And then in year two, she felt like I became a little bit more hungry to get back into coaching. And by year three, you know, she just kind of demanded that I had to go back to work. And so I went and coached in the G League in Reno. I wanted to be a head coach. I did not want to, I had a few opportunities to go back to the NBA as an assistant, but I wanted to be a head coach and continue to learn. And those three years that I was out, I really studied different philosophies and different systems. And I wanted to try those systems out. I had had some small point guards in Golden State in Earl Boykins and Speedy Claxton. And then I kind of had studied taller point guards and wanted to experiment with that, which I was able to do in the G League. Um, and have kind of carried that philosophy in the four years at Nevada and then the first two years at Arkansas. And from there, I went to, to L.A. And, and worked for the L.A. Lakers D-League team, um, the defenders, and got to experiment and got to watch and be in a building with some of the premier stars of our time and got to really study Kobe Bryant and some of the things that he did from a work ethic standpoint. And, Um, Yeah, so the career's gone a a lot of different ways, but the three years sitting out, Dan, was probably as good and as healthiest thing as I've ever done as a coach. Coach, you bring up an interesting topic. When you're three years out and you're studying and you're looking at different philosophies and different ways, and I'll hear it a lot too, like how do you build kind of your philosophy when you don't really know what your team's going to be like? I think that every coach is different. I think, Pat, that some coaches have a philosophy and, you know, they never deviate from that philosophy and they try to plug their players into the philosophy. My father was a coach who was overly creative and I saw him as I was growing up completely evolve as a coach. Uh, He coached at Ashland College. Uh, He set a defensive mark of holding opponents to 33.9. He actually had a book out called 33.9 and it was a very slow, deliberate, physical defense matchup zone. And then he went to the Timberwolves where I was an assistant with him. And our team was a heavy pick and roll team that controlled offensive tempo, but was a great defensive team. And then I saw him go to the old CBA, the Continental Basketball Association. And he had so many offensive weapons. I saw a man evolve from a very rigid offensive system to just allowing his guys incredible freedom and watched him create offensive sets that were so unique and so explosive from a scoring standpoint. His Tampa Bay Thrillers teams had so many great players. And then he carried that into his Albany Patroon team. And it was the same thing. They were offensive, explosive teams. And Mm -hmm. Rick Carlisle played on that team. Sidney Lowe, who was an NBA head coach. Sam Mitchell. I mean, so many great, great players. Scott Roth, who's currently coaching in Australia as a head coach. So many 
guys that went on. Todd Murphy, who's now a college head coach. Just a lot of great players that turned into coaching. And I think he had a big impact. Shoot, Scotty Brooks was on that team, uh, the current head coach of Washington. And I think that his uniqueness in changing his style, I kind of watched. And and so my belief is that you really have to adapt to your talent. And then, you know, at the collegiate level, you are your own general manager. In the NBA, it's a little bit different situation because you have a front office that's kind of picking your players. And then you kind of have to be in partnership with your general manager and and the front office on how you play. But at the collegiate level, you can certainly, you know, do your own thing because you're recruiting to what you want. Right. Whereas in high school, I know there's a lot of high school coaches that listen, um, you know, to slap it glad. I look at them almost like an NBA coach because you're kind of just getting what your area, you know, brings you. And certain years you have talent and other years you don't have talent. And so I've looked at that, you know, how a high school coach has to operate. And in a lot of ways, it's it's much different than a college coach and much more similar to what an NBA coach has to deal with. Yeah. Coach, kind of sticking a little bit on momentum and stuff as well. One of the things I think when someone, people from the outside watch you and your programs is you have this tremendous energy um, within your program and you yourself. But I wonder what you've learned throughout the years about what not to spend your energy on that can kind of suck time and energy from yourself and from your program. What have you learned to sort of say no to so it doesn't take things away from what you're trying to build? You like you can't control things that you know that are out of your control, and, and you can't worry about that. You know, one of the greatest lessons, and I think if you look at George Carl or Phil Jackson, guys that have coached Dave Yeager, guys that have coached in the minor leagues, Flip Saunders, like those guys adjust really, really quickly on the fly. And I think it's because when you're coaching a basketball team and your two best players, for instance, I'm coaching in Reno, and Danny Green gets picked up. Jeremy Lin gets picked up. And then three days later, Steve Novak gets picked up. Like you can't cry over spilled milk. Like you got to just pick it up and keep moving. And I really think it allows you to focus on each day, not look three days down the road, just do what you can do on this particular day with whatever players you have and whatever staff you have. Um, And then I don't think, you know, you really can't change staff members, you know, they are who they, and I'm still learning all this stuff, you know? And so as a 56 year old man, you're constantly learning, you know, I think you can change players because of their age. You're not going to change an NBA 15 year vet, but what you can do is you can change high school players. Uh, You can help them evolve as people. You can help them evolve as players. You can certainly do the same thing with college players. And you're seeing it in the NBA right now as well, because there's so many young players that are going to the NBA. There's larger rosters now than there were 10 or 15 years ago. There's two-way contracts. So those players you can really help evolve both on the floor and off the floor, but really you cannot waste time or energy on things that are just out of your control. Coach, what you just mentioned might be sort of a nice lead into another topic that we'd like to explore, which is what really wins games and, and what helps your program to, to be a successful program. And I think, you know, right now we're heading into the off season with most coaches and all study and all sorts of other playbooks and what people are doing. And for Pat and I, we're really interested in like what successful programs focus on in the off season that really, really matters. And we kind of wanted to start with the offensive side of the ball. And what are the most important things for you and your program, especially late February going into March, that has the most impact on winning games? Yeah, I think offensively, sharing the ball, 
passing up a good shot for a great shot, realizing that the ball has eyes. If you don't have the ball in your hands, how are you engaging the defense? I think it's easy for us from an offensive standpoint when you got the rock in your hand. But what are you doing to engage the defense when you do not have the ball in your hands? Are you able to play the game of basketball without the ball in your hands? Making the extra pass, all those things. And then understanding from a team concept, understanding each other's strengths and weaknesses, and then accepting each other's strengths and weaknesses. You know, for us in the summer, we want to have a goal when we hit September 1 that we have all of our stuff in, both offensively and defensively. So if the NCAA called us and said, hey, you've got to go play Baylor on September 1, we would have everything in. We could, everything. I'm talking about late game situations. I'm talking about jump ball plays. I'm talking about down three. You're at the foul line with two seconds to go and you only have one foul shot. How are you going to overcome to get a three? By missing a free throw, where's the ball going? So on and so forth. All those things we want to have in. And so we utilize our time, you know, our four hours a week on basically practice. And then it's up to our players to get in and work on their skill development. Certainly we sprinkle in skill development every day in practice, which everybody should. But that's kind of our overall concept offensively. And then to start this off, Dan, you said, you know, what goes into winning? Yeah. You got to be competitive. That's you cannot win if you don't have a competitive group, a group that hates to lose. You can't win. And so how can you as a coach or a coaching staff create that? It starts every day that you're in practice. It's in the weight room. It's how competitive are you in your shooting drills? How competitive is your staff? I think all those you can't win if you're not competitive. Plain and simple. Uh, And you can't win if you don't have great toughness and you don't have great togetherness. And so those three things, I think, are really the formula. And and everybody can talk about them, but how do you create them? Coach, two things to follow up there. A lot of good stuff. But first, I want to start with how do you create a competitive staff? And what do you mean by a competitive staff? I look at, you know, my time as a head coach. And I look at my staff with the Golden State Warriors. We actually improved by 17 games my first year from the year before. On that staff was David Fisdale. Keith Smart was in year two. Jim Boylan, who coached the Chicago Bulls as a head coach. You know, those are three former NBA head coaches. So if you don't think that that room was competitive, meaning if you're an assistant coach, you want to have as good a relationship with each player as you possibly can. You want guys to want to come work out with you, even in the NBA. And so I think that creates some competitiveness in a good way. And staffs that are not really good, there's probably not enough staff competitiveness. It's the same thing. I look at our staff in in Sacramento and Scotty Brooks was on that staff. Brendan Connor, who's been in the NBA as an assistant coach, he's currently with the LA Clippers. Mark Hughes, who's an executive with the Clippers. I mean, when you're around those type of people, it might not be competitive in a negative way. It might be just who's going to bring a new idea to the table. Uh, When I worked in Memphis, Lionel Hollins was on that staff. There was a competitiveness with Lionel and, and what he would bring to the table offensively, or maybe what I would bring to the table offensively to coach Fratello. And so I think all that stuff is really, really healthy. When you're on a complacent staff, nobody's really learning. 
And what you should want as a coach is you, I, as a head coach, I want assistant coaches that are bringing me new ideas to make me a better coach. And we have a little think tank every day. Some of them aren't even our assistant coaches. Some of the guys that are bringing the best ideas to me are graduate assistants or support staff guys. Those are the guys that are first ones in the office that are trying to figure out something new, some motivational tactic, some pregame theme that we can go through. I think all those things become important when you talk about a competitive staff, Pat. Another thing, now going back, I guess, more to the tactical side of the ball, you said, you know, it's important to engage the defense off the ball. So I'm curious, I'm assuming that's maybe cutting or screening, but what kind of cuts or screens do you have most success with at your program that, you know, engages the defense off the ball? Well, I think, Pat, cutting, off-ball screening on the weak side, all those things are also personnel kind of driven. I, I really, truly believe that. Uh, for instance, last year we had a player, Justin Smith, that was a great cutter, whether it was from the corner or from the 45-degree angle. So we tried to place him in those two areas, and then anybody that had the ball knew that you had to be alert for a cut from Justin, but we have certain cuts. We have a Kenny, the Jet Smith cut that when you feed the post, you cut baseline hard because Kenny Smith was so great at that. We have a Corey Maggette cut. When we run a pick and roll on the right side of the floor, the left side of the floor, Corey Maggette was great from the weak side, curling in to the middle of the lane, but not getting in the way of the ball handler if he was dribble driving into the teeth of the defense or the center of the floor. Uh, so we have a Corey Maggette cut. And what we try to do is take those NBA player clips, even if they're for old school players, show them to our guys, and then implement that cut so that they can buy into it. And then we have you know things on the weak side, like weak side pairs um, that become important, or weak side flare actions. And then you can incorporate slips out of those two. But I think the big thing is understanding who your team is and then understanding what cuts if you have multiple dribble drive guys that want to get into the lane, uh, you might not cut as much. If you have yeah. three, three point shootings, you might want to be more spaced out and stationary. So I really think it, it can just be some, you might have two players that are designated spacers and then you might have two designated cutters. And so that works into your advantage as well from an offensive standpoint, but clearly defining the roles and clearly defining the spacing of the cuts become overly important as well. With a great cutter, maybe now in a pick and roll setting, are you looking to still cut that? Are you more of a space on the pick and roll or with a good cutter? Are you looking to maybe position him in a certain way to get his cuts and the pick and roll? Yeah, I think if you're talking about a third player being the cutter and the pick and roll is happening either in the middle of the floor or it could be a flat screen or an angle screen, certainly where that guy cuts, you want him to cut into what we call an open space or open block. Uh -huh. And so how do you create that space becomes really important. And then who sets the screen for the cutter is overly important because if that screen is set by a non-shooter, there's going to be a lot of help. It's so rare that you watch a great shooter set a screen for a great cutter. People don't do that. But if we have a great shooter like a Moses Moody setting a screen for a great cutter, that opens up yeah. a bend shot for a great shooter like Moody. Right. So I think there's a lot of magic that goes into how you formulate who sets the screen, where the screen is set, who's cutting, 
And then what area of the floor is that screen setter cutting to? And then where is the screen setter going after he sets that screen is maybe just as important as the guy that's, that's cutting into the open block or the open space. Coach, how much of sort of these cutting concepts or off-season thoughts about how you could make these things better are based off of the players you have and how much are based off of the way that the best teams in your conference guard certain actions? Yeah, that's a great question, Dan. You know, we're not really, like we're not, throughout the whole summer, we're not talking, you know, about how George is playing pick and roll, or we're not talking about what Kentucky's going to do full court defensive wise. I mean, basically my playbook here at Arkansas is no different than what we ran with Golden State and Sacramento. Now, certainly we've added a ton of stuff. We've added a bunch of different tweaks. What we ran for Mike Bibby in Sacramento might be something because Mike Bibby was a point guard. We now might run that, for instance, for Moses Moody last year as our three man. So we'll take those plays. And if we have a shooting Five man, Connor Vanover at times have run plays that we ran for our off guard. And he's a seven foot three center. So we had this playbook. We had these certain philosophies from a cutting standpoint, from a ball movement standpoint, from a pick and roll standpoint. Now, who runs those pick and rolls? We want to be as interchangeable as possible. Again, I'm going to go back to last year with Justin Smith as our power forward. He had not in his career ever handled the ball in pick and roll. Well, we found out of our Boston set, if we ran a Boston fist, because our pick and rolls are called fist, if we put him in this Boston set that he was so great at as an isolation player, if we ran him into a quick pick and roll where he actually handled the ball and a guard set a screen, he was really, really good off of one or two bounces in pick and roll, which he'd never played before handling the ball. And so I think that you've got to be creative mm-hmm. as well. Once you get a good grasp of what guys can and can't do. Coach, is there a spot on the floor you prefer to run pick and rolls that you feel stresses the defense or gives you the most success? It really depends on who that guy is. Okay. You know, we have a player, JD Note. If I put him in a wing pick and roll on the left side of the floor in our fist outset, if somebody tries to ice him, it doesn't matter. He's going to figure out a way to, <laughs> to reject yeah. it and get somewhere. If we put him in the middle of the floor and they try to weak him, it doesn't matter because he, he's, that, he's that good. He creates magic with the ball. But yeah, I think it does matter. I mean, if, if you have a predominantly left-handed dribble drive guy, you're going to probably want to run pick and roll with that particular player on the right side of the floor. Some players don't like to play in crowds. Yeah, I think it's a little bit more crowded on the wings. It's less crowded in the middle of the floor. So if you have a player who's claustrophobic with the ball, and doesn't want to play in crowds, how do you create space where, where he doesn't feel being boxed in or claustrophobic? Chuck Daly was a master. When I worked with him with Orlando, he was a master at different angles of the pick and roll. And, you know, I think it's funny to hear guys think that they created all these different angles because Coach Daly put guys in every angle possible, both when he was with the Pistons, when he had Joe Dumars and Isaiah Thomas. And then he ran the same type of stuff in Orlando. And I was able to watch him put these guys all over the floor. And then with weak side action, I mean, our late game package is a wing pick and roll with a bunch of different things on the weak side. And we've been running the same play with actions. I I walked in, as a matter of fact, today, Coach Tom Thibodeau, because he runs a lot of the same stuff that my dad ran. And so we have a very, very similar playbook. And 
He added in his left wing pick and roll, he added uh, San Antonio Spurs wedge screen where it was an up screen into a wing pick and roll. And then he took that wedge screen guy and he rolled him underneath the rim. And then he came off a red screen on the weak side with two guys double downing, down pinning for the guy who set the wedge screen, which I had never seen up until last night's at the eight minute mark in the third quarter that the Knicks ran against Atlanta in game two. Because what we've been doing is just sticking a guy in the in the right corner and he receives that red screen once there's a, a pick and roll on the left side of the floor. So Coach Thibodeau, I want to thank him for a new wrinkle <laughs> in our fist out red set. <laughs> we want to thank you for making our editing yeah, job easier. Thank you for the time in the quarter. That was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Coach, sticking on the the pick and roll and that concept, teaching college guys how to set good angled non-offensive foul screens at the college level. And, you know, I know Pat and I, we we do a lot of the film of the European stuff and those guys are so good at, you know, flipping the screen at the last second or just changing their body angle and a little tougher at the college level with offensive fouls being called a little tighter. How do you teach your bigs to set good angle screens? And then, and then second, I guess, is when to just ghost it or to slip it as well. Really, Dan, well, you bring up a great thing, you know, the European thing, and maybe we can get into that later, but having spent time with Dominican Republic and Venezuela national team, the best coaches in the world are NBA coaches, bar none. The unique thing about my background is I've coached at every level. And so the NBA coaches are by far the best. The second best coaches by far are coaches in Europe. And then the third are college. And they're at the bottom compared (laughs) to these other two. And I promise you, it's not even close. (laughs) It's not even close. NBA is way up here. Europe, depending on the level of Europe, you know, if you're talking about the, you know, the best teams in Italy and Spain, they're they're really close to NBA coaches. Uh, If not, you know, more creative in their offensive stuff. Going back to your original comment, the moving screen in college, college refs love that. Right. I mean, it's like their favorite thing to call. It's like if you took a college ref and told him to go referee a FIBA game, I don't know if they'd get out of the building because (laughs) uh, we, we, we wouldn't be able to finish a FIBA game. So it's really important in college to tell your players with the ball to be patient. One, you want them to read the defense. So you got to have great patience from that aspect. But with the moving screens, you've almost got to wait for a one count. Like if if you even semi start to go, it's going to be a moving screen. And then the angle of the screen becomes important as well. For instance, for us defensively, our footwork defending pick and rolls is whatever way The screen setter's feet are, is where we are defensively. And I've been around a lot of coaches. I don't know where I came up with it, but it's helped us in our defensive coverages. So offensively, if we're setting a wing pick and roll, we don't always want our 10 toes to the sidelines. We want to set flat screens. We want to set, because how you defend that, like we can tell right away when we start setting in a game, different angle pick and rolls and the other team's covering them the same way. We're like, all right, we got them now because you should not defend the pick and roll. If the footwork's different by the screen setter and you're guarding it the same way, well, now it's go time. Now it's time to start picking somebody apart. 
So I do think it's really important to change the angle. But from a ball handler standpoint, you got to have great patience. And then as a screen setter, if you're not ghosting or slipping or Houston rocket slips, as we call it, you've got to make contact with the man guarding the ball or it doesn't it doesn't affect the play at all. With the contact, are you telling the screener to run into the contact to like the stop a foot short or what's kind of how are you teaching to make contact? Yeah, we like our guys to set basically an arm length away from the defender. Again, we, we just don't want to move moving straight. To us, we got to get a shot on goal. That's our number one offensive philosophy. A bad shot for us is better than no shot. And so moving screens, live ball turnovers, they're the worst thing that can happen at Arkansas basketball. So for us, it's going to be up to the ball handler to drive that defender into the screen. Okay. And he's got to be creative and he might have to take that thing one dribble below the screen if we're setting it, you know, maybe a little bit further gap from what most people set it. Again, because of my paranoia of yeah. the thought that a referee <laughs> is going to blow the whistle on a moving screen. Yeah. Can, can we just go back real fast and dive in on you? You mentioned that the angle of the person guarding the on ball needs to mirror the angle of the screen. Can you drill down on that just for a second? Let's say if the screen is set with the 10 toes to the side, Uh the way that we're playing it, like if we're hard showing or trapping, our toes are going to mirror where his toes are. So our 10 toes are to the sideline too, especially if we're trapping or hard showing. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing on a flat screen. So let's say that the screen setters 10 toes are towards our rim. Well, we want our toes towards their rim and we'll be basically side by side with that screen setter. Okay. That's just our philosophy because it's the same thing if we're switching it. That's how we want our toes as well. Got it. If it's a V set or a horn set and the guy's toes are going towards the half where the midline and half, that's where our toes are. So we switch at the exact angle or we hard show at the exact angle as the screen is being set. It also helps us be at the point of the screen. You said you came to that after years of stuff. I guess, why did you come to that? And why has it been more effective in your mind? If you're guarding a horn set or you're guarding a wing pick, and I mean, the ball handler and the ball is placed at different spots on the floor. There's different objectives that are going on from an offensive standpoint. And we just found through years and years of doing it that that became the most effective. Uh-huh. It also allowed our defensive player to have really, really strict rules on his placement of his footwork in defending the pick and roll. He's just mirroring what his man is doing from a footwork standpoint. And then it's a, it's a flip side on offense, like you asked about where those screens are set. I mean, if we're running a horn set, we're setting it at the exact same spot so that the ball handler knows and the screen setters know where it is. And it might vary from team to team based on how they're defending. If we're setting our fist out, they know exactly what to do. They're starting at the top of the key. They're going to take three steps to the nail. They're going to go from the nail directly to the wing, and the ball handler knows he better have the ball free throw line extended when that screen's set. And we're like robots in those spots on our fist out set. Okay. Coach, when you go up against teams that can switch, how do you look to attack the switch? 
That's a great question. We actually had a had a staff meeting on that yesterday. And I think in its simplest form, for us at Nevada, we switched everything for four years. And we used to love it because teams would try to post up and we just fronted. Yeah. And there's so many bad passers in college that can't pass over a front. Yeah. And so it was like, oh man, these guys are playing right into our hands. They're trying to front the non-score. So if it was a non-score and we switched. We would just say, don't even front the dude. Just let him catch the ball and throw a brick up and let's go get the defensive court. <laughs> and, and if it was a good score, which there's very few in college that can score with their back to the basket, we would front with, and have great weak side tags. So I think when you start talking about switching from an offensive standpoint, I think the ball got to move. I think what we've all done, and we see it in NBA games all the time. You know, teams are playing Golden State. They try to get Steph Curry in a switch. And they want Curry to guard, you know, a guy with the ball. And so you see a lot of one-two pick and rolls in the NBA or a lot of one-three pick and rolls where they'll try to pick on a guy that they think is not a great defender. And then it just becomes iso ball and stationary. At the high school level and the collegiate level, you can't do that. I I think a lot of what European basketball does is good. They get the switch, then they start moving the ball, and then eventually you get it back to the mismatch. You know, instead of here in the United States, People are trying to mirror the NBA too much where, and, and there's too much help in college and there's too much help in high school. Yeah. You get too many non-shooters on the floor. So when you try to, all right, now we got the switch. We got a big on a little, let's let the little break it down off the bounce. It sounds really good, but in, in reality, it doesn't happen. So we like to have secondary and third counters off of it. And then somehow get to that mismatch either in the post or out on the floor, but not off the initial action. Coach, I don't want you to give everything away. Can, can you name maybe what is maybe one of the secondary actions you'll look to run when they switch? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it gets back to if you know somebody's going to switch, right? So they're playing man-to-man and they switch. Who do you want to be the primary score? Is it the guy that set the screen who now might have a smaller player on him or is it the guard, uh-huh. you know, who's now got a big on it? Well, we might tell our guard, hey, give that thing up to a trail guy. All right. And act like you're going down to set a down pin in the corner and come right back off for a DHO. Okay. That might be an action. And through our summer, all those things become reads. And then we let our guys actually decide what they want to do and how they want to get that thing back. And then on the post, we obviously know what we're doing because we're going to set a screen. I kind of already alluded to setting a screen with a shooter. It might be a shooter out of the corner, come setting for a guy who set a pick and roll. There's a switch. And then we swing that thing and go to the opposite corner and dump it in the post along the baseline. Okay. With those reads you work on in the summer, and then when you implement them, will you make it a call so everyone's on the same page? So in your example, if he wanted to play the DHO, would the guard be saying something or would it literally be everyone's, like they're going to be able to react off of what the guard does in the DHO? Hopefully, Pat, they're able to react. <laughs> that comes back to the coaching. You know, it's it's like when you always get mad at your players, you probably should get mad at yourself and your staff because it's not the player's fault. Like if five guys don't know what you're doing, it's probably poor coaching. (laughs) You know, maybe if one guy's a little slow, you can live with that. But it's like, yeah, we're in a staff meeting. Everybody's mad at like eight guys. It's like, no, you know what? That's that's terrible. coaching. We better better figure out how to coach better and, and explain. But certainly, yeah, we in a timeout, we might say. Hey, let's bait the switch. Let's fake the weak side pass. Come right back to a DHO. Okay. You know, but in a game, hopefully we've drilled it enough where we 
been in a three-on-three situation where it might be dummy defense, and we've drilled this thing over and over. A lot of that will be in our game preps as well as we lead up and we have three or four days, which is like an eternity. If you're used to the NBA and you got to play a game, then you got to, you know, you got to go travel. Your shoot arounds are non-existent in those situations. So you got to be really clear and concise in your film study. And so I've always felt, and especially having a, a staff of guys like Earl Boykins, who played in the NBA for 14 plus years, and Clay Moser, who's got 15 years plus experience. Certainly when we're in these meetings, we feel like we have a ton of time prep-wise where we can get these guys to read based on how certain teams want to play it. Yeah. Coach, we could probably keep going on, on yeah. this topic for a while, but we'll switch a little bit here to uh, actually a newer segment on the show that we've been doing. We have overrated, underrated. We have start, sub, sit, but we have this new segment called over or under. And so what we'll do is we'll give you a basketball topic and give you a number and then you tell if it's over or under and we can have kind of a fun little discussion from there. So we'll just give a fun one for you here to start. But you are someone that, you know, when watching you coach, you're very energetic on the sidelines, you're up and down, uh, a lot of movement. So if someone had a step counter on the number of steps that you take during a game as a head coach over or under two and a half thousand steps that you take during a game, 2,500 steps. What is the calorie count on that? You think? <laughs> we, we try to do the math and it's about yeah. two and a half thousand steps is about a mile walking oh, then, about a mile. So I don't know what the calories. So I, I would be over that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. But Tom, Tom Crean is, is, is he paces more than me though, for sure. <laughs> okay, so we'll have to get him on and we'll up, we'll up his uh, to see where he's at. <laughs> You're an energetic coach on the side, but what are you most concerned about during the game? What are you like looking at mostly? Is it the flow of the game? Is it how hard your players are playing? Are you looking offense? Like what, what do you zero in on personally as a head coach on the sideline? Everything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think number one is certainly the intensity level that everybody has, that's number one, because it's a non-negotiable here. If you're not playing hard, you're not going to be on the court. It's non-negotiable from a defensive intensity and defensive game plan. And then it's non-negotiable if you're being selfish. If someone's rolling offensively, we'll call his play or his number time after time after time and milk that thing. But we just don't want ill-advised shots. So it's pretty simple from a substitution pattern for us. Our guys could basically just walk off the floor because they'll know when when they're probably going to come out. Uh-huh. It's my job as the head coach. You know, we're not a football team. It's interesting, though. I used to call out every offensive play throughout my whole career. Then when I got to Nevada, I actually had some other people and I would we would converse or I would say as as we were going back on defense, I would say, hey, let's run you know, 15 fist out red snake next time down the floor. And then somebody would write it on the board and we'd hold it up. I would say that, yeah, during the game as a head coach, you've got to see and have a feel for everything because every time there's a timeout, it's your responsibility to make some adjustment or give some nugget to help your team better position itself for the next four minutes. And if you're not doing that, then you failed as a coach. So it's my responsibility every single time out, which is whatever, every four minutes, like you've got to know what you're telling them offensively, defensively. You've got to tell them what the other team's doing. You got to tell them what the other team's adjustments are 
and how you're going to attack both offensively, defensively. And it all also might be, you know, you might have to change something up drastically when you get behind in a game like we did against Cincinnati and we're behind 27 points or whatever in an NCAA tournament game. And there's 10 and a half minutes to go. If you go in the huddle and just say, hey, let's just keep playing hard. My AD should just fire me, like on the spot. I mean, you've got to give your guy something, you know, and, and so you change up what you're doing. And I think that's the responsibility of everybody in game. You have so many different things that are going through your mind, but you've, you know, as, as energetic as I am on the outside, on the inside, I feel really at peace and really at ease with having to make adjustments during the course of a, of a 40 minute college game. Coach, how can, if you're an assistant who wants to be a head coach, how can maybe you train yourself so you can, let's say, develop this eye of seeing everything where sometimes maybe assistant, you know, okay, I got to track this, 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 you know, is there any way maybe besides obviously being a head coach as an assistant, you can understand a flow of a game and be involved in everything? I'll tell you this, Pat, I would love to say, here's the answer, Yeah, but there's a real reason why most of my career has been as a head coach. Because I can tell you, like when a CBA, the old Continental Basketball Association, we played 50 games and then we would have, you know, roughly 10 to 12 playoff games if, if you were good in advancing. I went and then coached in a, in a league called the USBL, which was the United States Basketball League, which is a minor league in the summers. And I coached another 30 games there. So to me, the experience factor, like why did I want to coach the Venezuelan national team or the Dominican Republic? Because I wanted head coaching experience. Yeah. And that by far is the number one way to learn. Now, if you're an assistant coach and that's just who you are and you don't have an opportunity to become a head coach, as stupid as this sounds, coach at the youth, like the youth yeah. basketball camp. I know that sounds so weird, and I'm going to give you guys a quick story. So the three years I'm not coaching, I go to one of my son's games, high school games, and I have a guy come up to me from the opposing team. His son's also playing, and the guy says, hey, will you start an AAU team? And I look at the guy like he's crazy. I just got done coaching the Sacramento Kings. Why do I want to be an AAU coach? (laughs) Well, I see him a few weeks later. He begs me. So I said, hey. I'll tell you what, I'll go out to this outdoor court, Sycamore Park in Danville, California. I'll be there at three o'clock. If you want to gather some kids up, I'll put them through some workouts. So we do it for a couple of weeks. And the guy asked me to enter the team into a tournament. I said, all right, I'll do it. So we ended up playing like, I don't know, 60 some games that summer. I'm coaching AAU basketball. I can tell you, this is the truth. The experience with those kids, and, they, and, and I did it for two years, actually. They were in seventh and eighth grade. All of the problems you have, Coach, in the seventh and eighth grade, you have the same problems at the pro level. They're just different. They're called different names. Instead of parents, they're called agents. <laughs> but you're getting experience. It's the same thing like at Arkansas here, we're going to have a youth camp. Well, I think it's important for our GAs to be head coaches of this camp because they're, they're gaining experience. They got to yeah. call a timeout. And I know it sounds pretty elementary, but I can tell you, I learned so much coaching my son and his buddies in seventh and eighth grade. There's always these same set of problems, minutes, who gets the minutes, who gets the shots, what's the rotation, who's mad after the game, even when you win. Right. All these things, it doesn't matter if it's third grade CYO, you're coaching an NBA team. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I shouldn't feel so bad then about putting Running Panther Sports Camp on my resume, I guess, anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I will say, as an assistant coach, what you should do is during the course of a game, you should be thinking and you should be writing down. Yeah. You know, like if we call a certain play and you think it didn't work, why didn't it work? Write it down, jot down the time, go back and watch it on film, bring it to the head coach. And then certainly you should be putting your head coaching hat on with players all the time. Individually, what a player should like, like your point guard, what is his picture that he's seeing on the floor? And are you sitting down with that player and painting that picture for him? You know, are you doing that yet? Everybody says it, but are you really doing it? Are you trying to get inside that player's head and seeing what he sees? Because everybody sees the game differently. And so as an assistant coach, you should be doing that. Your power forward, when he's trailing on a break, what is he seeing? What is he feeling? What does he truly feel comfortable doing? What does he feel his options are that he's capable of doing? All those things assistant coaches should be doing, you know, with their players if they want to be a head coach. Everyone says they want to be a head coach, but what are you bringing to the head coach that then he can bring to his athletic director and say, wow, this guy's really on top of his game. Keith Smart's been here for a few days. Today he came in my office and he talked about breathing. And he's doing a study on breathing when the ball is dead. Nobody's brought that to me before. But you know what? Like, he's got me thinking. I said, hey, Keith, if you're studying it, when we get together, you know, in September, talk to the team. Do a whole segment on breathing. Because to me, it's, it's awesome. Like, he's bringing something new to the table that I've never thought about. And I think that's what great assistants do. They bring new ideas, new thought processes, new philosophies to the head coach to the team and individual players. All right, Coach. My over under, the most realistic and successful rotation on your team, over under seven and a half player rotation. I think it depends on your team. I really do. At Nevada, I played six and a half guys. That was my rotation. Yeah. In the old G League, D League, whatever you want to call it, the CBA as a minor league coach, We had a 10-man roster. I played all 10 guys 24 minutes in our 48-minute game because I thought like everybody wanted to get called up. I understood the deal. And my job was to to develop players and win games and try to sell buildings out as a minor league coach. But I felt like obligated to play everybody as many minutes as I potentially could. And then that would obviously vary, you know, in the fourth quarter. You know, last year at Arkansas, we had a little bit bigger rotation. We played about eight and a half. And this year we end up actually could play nine or 10. So I really think it depends, Pat, on your team. Okay. And I think it depends on the level, too. I'm very bothered by high school coaches, especially JV coaches that play five or six guys. Like, are you freaking kidding me? Your job is to develop players. The only way to develop is put them in the damn game. And so high school coaches that are playing, you know, six guys, I don't really buy that. I think you need your underclassmen kids to play a little bit. You know, one of the things that we brought you know, in the NBA, tie usually goes to the rookie unless you're a playoff team. So if you have a six-year vet or you have a, a first-round draft pick and it's a tie talent-wise and impact, the, the rookie's winning. It was a first-round draft pick. Yeah. Then I get to college and I hear everybody say, well, Ty should go to the upperclassman because he's been here for three years. 
well, no, Ty should go to the younger player because he's going to be here for three more years. <laughs> right. And so, you know, at Nevada, everyone talks about our transfers, but at Nevada, Lindsey Drew and Cam Oliver, I made a decision that those two freshmen were going to play a lot of minutes in our first year so that it would help us in year two. I think your rotation, it really depends on who's on your roster. I'm really comfortable playing six or seven guys because I think they can play through their mistakes. And I think that there's an incredible bond when you have a small rotation. And I've had this conversation with Tom Thibodeau because we've worked together. Tom obviously has had a really small rotation throughout much of his career. And we've talked about the benefits of that. Your guys become more durable. They become more tough. They understand their roles explicitly. When you play more players, it becomes a little bit more convoluted and a little bit more complicated. Coach, looking at, you brought up a, an interesting point for me, looking at minutes you're giving players, are you thinking, okay, when I sub one in, I got to give him this many minutes so he comes into the game so he can have a chance to contribute. And the same thing that at the end of the game, it's like, okay, well, he only played nine minutes. Like, do, what can I realistically expect that he's going to give us? So we got to either get him maybe less minutes and go with someone else or give him more minutes so he can contribute. The word giving minutes, I think has got to be out of, yeah. you know, kind of got to be out of a head coach's vocabulary. But I think if you clearly, like I have no problem. We were talking about this the other night at dinner with our staff. I put a walk on in a game at Nevada named David Cunningham. He had not played the whole game. Uh, it was a really big game against Utah State. And one of the best players in the Mountain West was a player at the time named Sam Merrill. Mm -hmm. I put a walk on in at the end of the game. We needed one stop. There was a timeout and I put David Cunningham and I assigned him to guard Sam Merrill, maybe arguably the best player in the Mountain West. And I put him in, I put a walk on in who maybe played 28 minutes the whole year for us. And I had him guard Sam Merrill because I thought that he could guard him do exactly what I wanted, send Sam Merrill in the direction I wanted him sent and do it without fouling. You know what? We had built David Cunningham up all year where he felt like he might have a role sometime during the course of the year that he would be a no foul, follow the game plan type player. So I think that you can build confidence up. You got to build confidence up in every single player whether they've played the whole game or not, that you could put him in in the late game. Same thing with the guy. Somebody might be sitting there all game. We had another walk-on, Charlie Tooley, that I put in the game late because he was a three-point threat, and he hadn't played the whole game. And so I think that you can do that stuff with guys. And then I also think it puts a predicament on the opponent as well when they haven't seen a guy or don't have a real true feel for a player. Coach, when you have a tight rotation of seven, what are your conversations like with the 8th, ninth, 10th guy who they know they're close, but they're not really getting many minutes? And then also maybe the guys more at the end of the bench who have maybe no shot of getting in to keep them motivated and feeling like they're a part of the group and contributing. Yeah, Dan, that's an awesome question. And so when we were doing the six and a half rotation at Nevada, I had four sit outs for four straight years. So as I observed colleges, different programs, I often wondered why they had a 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th men, 13th sitting and doing nothing. And so I, I had a strategic plan that I wanted four guys sitting out every year because I felt like eight guys was enough. I needed the other bodies for practice, 
but I only needed really eight or nine guys for the games because I knew that I could get by. Look, in the NBA, you're used to playing 82 games. You're used to traveling. You're used to an eight-minute longer game. I laughed at the stuff about you have to have depth. You don't have to have depth in college. I can promise you that. Does it help? Yeah, certainly it helps. Uh, But you also got to worry about your locker room. The more good players you have, the more dilemmas you have, the more egos you could have, the more chemistry, locker room interruptions you can have. And so I've always felt the worst thing to do is walk into a locker room after a win and guys aren't happy. That's the worst. Then you got to, you know, you got to go home. You got to turn on a West Coast game. You got to worry about this guy's not happy about his role. So I think if you do have now, there's no sit out guys this year in college basketball because of the new rules. Guy goes in the portal. He doesn't have to sit. So now this is going to be a problem for everybody in college basketball. This 13-man roster where everybody's eligible. And you're going to see more transfers because of this rule of no sit-outs. So how you manage that, it's going to be really, really complicated. The best way that I have found, and in the NBA, it's no different because in the NBA, you do have 13, 14, 15. Now you have two-way players that come and go. and You've got to clearly define what's going on. And you've got to tell guys, you know, it's the same thing with the baseball team. Like sometimes a guy's going to hit against left-handed pitcher sometimes, but you got to let the player know so you don't catch him off guard. Yeah. And so I think clear communication becomes extremely important when you're talking about rotation and bench players. It doesn't mean they're going to accept it, but certainly through clear and concise communications, the best way and uncomfortable conversations and having those conversations early. But probably the most important thing, the players know. So you've got to put them in competitive situations throughout your training camp or throughout your off season so that the players know, Yeah. hey, this is the pecking order. This is our go-to player because he's proven it. Yeah. This is our ball security guy because he's proven it. This is our sixth man. We all know it. So that it's not coming from the coach. It's the players. It's, it's interesting because. We had a change in our starting lineup and a couple players came to me said, coach, we all know like this dude's got to come in the starting lineup, man. Now's the time to make the move. And the players know they understand better than coaches do. Absolutely. All right, coach. Our last one here over under the number of paint touches you would like in an offensive possession. One and a half. Uh, I would say that I'd say over. Uh, I would say paint touches are important for sure. I think as the games evolve, the paint touches have come much more off the bounce than in the post. But I do think throwing that thing in the post is really, really important. I think the more paint touches you have, the more three balls you're going to get with open looks. That's for sure. That's the only question I'm going to answer really quickly and short and concise. <laughs> well, then I guess we can. Yeah, we should ask follow-ups. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's our fault for all the follow-ups with you. I guess, you know, earlier you talked about good to great. So I guess with maybe one paint touch, you feel like maybe there's fool's gold with the shot it can create. And like you said that, you know, let's keep working. Let's get into that extra paint touch and then we're going to get the great shot. No, we want to try to get as high a quality of shot as quick as we possibly can. And I think you can do that best by beating the defense and getting shots up before the defense is actually set. You know, for five, six years now, we played at one of the faster paces in all of collegiate basketball. So, you know, I think Pat 
if you can get a quick early touch and transition, that's great. Mm-hmm. It might just be a quick kick ahead. You know, I think one of the worst yeah. things that can happen for a team offensively is killing grass. You know, and so how do you get your guards and your outlet? It could be a defensive rebounder. Get that ball up the floor and advancement as, as quick as possible. And I sit, think in transition and in a half court, if you can get a quick early paint touch and then a spit out, it certainly can help you get a high quality shot, even if it's off ball reversal. Okay. Coach, thanks for uh, playing over or under with us. That was, that was a lot of fun. I, I was all ready for start, sub, sit. <laughs> <laughs> well, Coach, before we ask you this last question here, uh, we really thank you for your time. Uh, this has been a lot of fun yeah, for us. I know it's super valuable for coaches. So thank you for, for spending the time with us well, I, today. I, have to, I, I hate to interrupt, Dan, but I want to thank you guys because I work out every every morning and love listening to your podcasts and you know, for all coaches, I bet even you guys would be surprised at, at how many NBA coaches listen to your podcast and coaches all over the world. Like the, the greatest thing about what you guys are doing is this is how we all evolve is to share the game. And so thank you guys, you know, for producing Slapping Glass, because not only is the name of the podcast really cool, but the podcast <laughs> is really great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. Guy. That means a lot. Yeah. So in closing, you know, you're someone that's had a lot of success at a lot of different places. Interested to hear what would be one of the best compliments that someone can say about a team that you coach? Just that we're, you know, competitive and nobody plays harder. I think that that alone is, you know, the biggest compliment anybody could say. You know, my dad told me, because I was a head coach at 24 years old, and my dad told me, we had a meeting. He actually, you know, it's kind of weird when your dad says, Hey, I want to have a meeting with you face to face. I'm like, dad, I mean, I think that's just called a father son. talk. We're going to actually have a meeting. I'm like, well, do I have to wear a tie to this meeting or what? (laughs) No, we're going to, he said, we're going to have a business meeting. And, And he told me, he said, look, you don't know anything as a 24 year old coach. So let me get that straight with you right now. But what he did say is you want Whatever fan walks into your building, the first game or the 50th game, to say the same thing about your team. So whatever you do, make sure that your team plays with great consistency. And from a cosmetic standpoint, that that team represents the same thing every night, whether shots are falling or not. Make sure that that identity that you create, whatever that identity may be. And then he took it a step further that that when you end up being in a place and coaching somewhere that's on TV every night, whether it's an NBA or college, that whether somebody's watching that game in, in South Dakota or watching that game in Miami, that they say the same thing about your team. I mean, I would say that's the, that's the one lesson that my dad you know, taught me amongst the many lessons that I've learned. I mean, at a young age, and I'm going off topic, but it's really important to me. My dad actually asked Paul Brown, the former NFL great, who coached the Cleveland Browns and the Cincinnati Bengals. He actually asked Paul Brown when we were living in La Jolla, California, before my dad ever had his first pro experience coaching the San Diego sales. He asked Paul Brown to come and meet about his first team meeting. And Paul Brown, for hours, talked to my dad about the importance of the first five minutes of standing amongst the professional basketball team and my dad coming from the college ranks and how their antennas were going to be up on everything that he said in that first meeting. And so in my mind, before I go down and meet with my team, 
I'm overly prepared. I don't want to be around assistant coaches. I want to sit in my office and kind of rehearse what I'm going to say to the team, what the message is going to be, and how quickly size can I make that message with our guys? And then what is part of that message? Is video? Is audio? Is it an example of another player from another sport? But I got that from being around my dad and the many things that that he experienced me to at a young age, whether it was listening to Paul Brown talk or my dad had a great friendship with Billy Martin and my dad taking me into the dugout before a Yankee game and hearing those two guys talk about the competitive nature because Billy Martin was probably the most competitive baseball manager in the history of the MLB. So I've just been exposed to so many different competitive people. My dad grew up with Bobby Knight during the NBA lockout. When my dad was in the NBA and I was in the NBA, we met. We were with two different organizations and we met and sat with Coach Knight and watched Indiana practice for a full week and were part of all their staff meetings. And there's one thing that's a common denominator with these great coaches and it's competitiveness. so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass.